Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series dedicated to helping all of us talk more openly about money. Each show features a special guest who will share with you one of their favorite money myths. Then together we'll discuss how to bust that myth wide open. My name is Kathleen Burns Kingsbury and I am your host. My company is KBK Wealth Connection and it's committed to helping women, couples, families, and their financial teams shatter money taboos and learn how to effectively talk about money. It is my great honor today to be joined by a friend and a colleague, Dr. April Benson. Let me tell you a little bit about April before we officially welcome her to the show. Uh, April Lane Benson has a PhD. She's a nationally known psychologist in practice in New York City for over 35 years, and she specializes in the treatment of compulsive buying disorders. She's also the author of several books, including her most recent one, To Buy or Not to Buy, Why We Overshop and How to Stop. April offers treatment and group coaching, both in person and on the phone via Skype, and trains therapists who want to learn more about her model of treating shopping addictions. She's been quoted in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and many, many more, has appeared on radio and TV, including appearances on The Today Show and Good Morning America. She's a friend, a colleague, and a wonderful thought leader in the field of compulsive buying and overshopping. It's such a pleasure, April, to have you join us today. Well, it's a delight for me to be here, Kathleen. So I just love, well, I love your topic because certainly having uh, worked in the counseling field for a long period of time and working in money psychology now, um, really... Um, your area of expertise is so needed and it's such a a useful niche. But your myth today, um, do you want to share it with the audience? Tell them what we're going to focus on today and then we'll just kind of dive right in. Sure. This myth is actually based on a post-it, a a pad of post-its that a friend got me. And what it says, whoever said money can't buy happiness just didn't know where to shop. That's the myth that we're going to bust. Awesome. Now, I feel like I've seen that before. So maybe it was a post-it that was in a, like a Hallmark store, or is it a mm-hmm. famous quote by somebody? I don't know. I imagine it's a famous quote by somebody, but usually it's not credited to anyone. But you certainly, I've seen it on refrigerator magnets. So, And, and I have certainly an overhead and a slide. So you may have seen it when you've come to a talk that I've given. Excellent. Well, listen, I have to tell you that there's a lot of cards out there and a lot of posted notes that have kind of the essence of this myth. So tell me a little bit why, a little bit about why you were motivated to pick this myth. And then we'll kind of delve into how it either helps somebody or potentially gets in the way. Okay. I decided to pick this myth because it is so widespread that and unconscious. Many people, especially, most especially compulsive buyers, subscribe to this myth without realizing it. The buy-in is enormous, not just in the, you know, pardon the pun, but not just in the United States, but around the world as well. So that's really what the driving force is behind my wanting to debunk this. Okay. So before we debunk it, you know, often when I look at any type of money thought or money myth, there's usually a way in which either temporarily 
usually it's temporarily, it helps us, and then certainly ways in which it doesn't serve us at all. So before we get into how um, whoever said money can't buy happiness just didn't know where to shop can hurt us, can you talk a little bit about how it might be able to help somebody? I can. When you think about shopping, if you apply a bird's eye view to the idea of shopping, I think that's a way we can begin to look at this a little bit differently. For example, we don't just shop for goods and services. We also shop in our lives for ideas and experience. And some of the experiences we shop for are things like trips, hikes, lifestyles, partners. We use that word shopping metaphorically. And shopping is really a process of search. And we can search internally for aspects of ourselves, and we can search externally in stores and online, or we can shop externally, as I said before, for ideas and experiences. So the kernel of truth is that if you know where to shop, and it's not necessarily a store or online, if you shop for an experience that you might have with your whole family, it might be something that's really unforgettable and much more likely to bring happiness than shopping in a store or online. And we have a lot of research evidence to prove that. So that's the kernel of truth. So it's really about um, being able to understand that shopping is broader than just buying goods and services, that shopping is a searching. And in that searching in itself isn't necessarily negative. It's just the way in which or, or how you're uh, doing the searching and how it's um, either working or not working in terms yeah. of bringing you happiness. Now, I know um, that both personally and professionally, this has been something that you have bought into and believed. Um, so tell me a little bit about that and uh, how this uh, myth got in the way for you. Well, I grew up in a family where my mother had been a child of the Depression and there was not a lot of money in her childhood and she had tastes that far outstripped what she was able to afford and she was very conflicted when she got older and had the money to buy nice things. There were still old tapes running and the woman who lived next door, my mother's close friend and the mother of my close friend, had a very, very different take on shopping. She had grown up in a much more affluent family and didn't have the kind of conflicts that my mother did. And essentially, I saw two very different models. And it took me a while to transfer from the scarcity model in which I looked at goods to try to fill emotional needs that they just couldn't. 
needs for love and affection, needs to belong, needs to feel self-esteem, the esteem of other people and the need for autonomy. And I was at a point during my teenage years and early, late adolescence where I would buy much more than I could, than I needed or would use. And I began to really explore what shopping is really about, that process of search that we just talked about, when my favorite store closed after shopping at it for 20 years. I had to really think through what it had meant in my life, and I discovered a great deal about that. And for anybody who's more interested, who's interested in more details about that, my story, When Shopping Heals, is on my website and you can find it there in this by putting it into the search bar and can you say what your website address is just because you're bringing that up right now april yeah. it's shopaholicnomore.com and shopaholic is shop a holic great so early on you saw two different models of shopping and for you, you started to shop uh, in a way that it wasn't about what you needed. It was, it was filling up. It was searching. And then at what point did you decide, you know what, I don't, I'm not going to buy into this myth anymore. At what point did you or maybe at what point did some of your clients say, this isn't working anymore? Well, for me, I think it was, it, it happened gradually. And by the time this store closed and I was in my early 40s, I, I had already figured out that it didn't have to mean I was spoiled if I liked nice clothes. And I didn't have to just buy because things were cheap. I didn't have to stock up on things. I no longer bought into that deprivation mentality, that lack mentality. And I think it, in part, it had to do with my developing a professional interest in this and being able to really look at shopping from an academic perspective. And that enhanced my own feelings of self-esteem and the esteem of other people was also something that I got a lot more of when I when I became interested in this specialty and started learning about it and published, edited my first book. So essentially, I, I used my interest in this as a way of building this as a professional specialty because I knew what it was like having been an overshopper and, and, Coming to understand what the shopping process is really about, I felt as though I could really help people. And that has really proven to be the case. Absolutely. Your books and uh, certainly your resources online have all been, uh, are great. And I certainly refer to them to, uh, refer people to them a lot. Um, you know, one of the things that I've learned in doing this podcast series only for a short period of time is that probably, hmm, I'm going to say about 75% of the myths that people show up with that they want to bust wide open tie money with happiness. And so here we are, we're talking about shopping, uh, bringing happiness. Um, but at the same time, um, why do you think there's such a connection between the two? And what does the research actually say about that? Well, why do I think there's a connection 
but that money equals happiness. I think we're a very materialistic culture, and from on high, after two, you know, after 9-11, we had a president, then President Bush, who said to us, we cannot let the terrorists frighten our nation to the point where people don't buy things, people don't shop. I'm paraphrasing. Mrs. Bush and I want to go want you to go want you to go out shopping. So I think from the highest levels of government, we are fed this this pablum, you know, that shopping is the way to support our country. So I think that that is something that really perpetuates the myth. Now, what the research shows is complex, but for the most part, the research shows that the extent to which we use our discretionary money for ever more meaningless goods and services, there is an inverse relationship between that and a sense of well-being. Now, that changes if we use our money for altruistic purposes. Then, that is something that brings a great deal of happiness. There's also a very wonderful paper called, If Money Isn't Making You Happy, Then You're Probably Not Spending It Right. And, and I have two blog posts about that. It's on my website. There's a lot of very good research that's, that suggests that there are eight principles and this acquiring ideas and experiences rather than goods and services is just one of them. So there, there's really a lot to be said about the relationship between money and happiness. And we also know that beyond a subsistence level, it's not that the more money you have, the happier you have, the happier you are. It actually drops off and also relates very much to what you're using your money for. I think what's so interesting about this is, you know, certainly, um, let me just quickly tell you a very brief uh, situation in, in my life. And most people who know me and know my work know that we, about almost two years ago, relocated from um, the Massachusetts area to a rural place in Vermont. And I can remember when we were moving, we were getting rid of a lot of things. We didn't have a house yet. We didn't know when we were going to have a house. And, you know, I bought into this whole idea of simplifying life. And it was about experiences. And I was extremely happy. Um, we've since moved, we've bought a house, we're still into experiences and extremely happy. But one thing that I have noticed is the stuff is coming back. I mean, it, it's amazing. I, I tend to have some girlfriends who uh, actually have retail backgrounds. Um, so there's this community aspect to shopping together. Um, you know, a new house, you always think I quote unquote need this and I need that. And so I'm wondering, um, both on my own personal experience, but just in general, if someone listening is, is identifying with that at all, how do you know what is enough? And how do you know if you're shopping because you are searching for something else or you're shopping because it's actually, you know, it kind of makes sense for you to buy maybe that third pair of shoes or, you know, that bench for the living room, whatever it might be. I think you've got to look yourself squarely in the mirror and ask yourself some of these questions like, 
Do I use shopping as a quick fix for the blues? Have I tried to stop but been unable to? Do I feel guilty or ashamed about this behavior? Am I lying or hiding? And would my, would my life be richer if I weren't shopping so much? Those are some questions to begin to explore. Also on my website, on the home page, upper left-hand corner, we actually have something called Who Needs Help? Three Ways to Know. And there are two valid and reliable compulsive buying screeners on there with the scoring and a variety of additional questions beyond the ones that I've just mentioned. So that's available free to anybody who has a question about their own buying behavior. Excellent. So somebody who is listening can go onto your website, can take one of those assessments, can think about the questions you just asked. But in the interim, um, kind of what advice would you give listeners who do buy into this myth, who are tired of it, who don't want to uh, be shopping so much anymore, or don't want to buy into the idea that somehow more stuff is going to make them happy? Okay. Well, the first thing I would say is, you can never get enough of what you don't really need. When you think about that idea, it can help you realize that you're not in touch with what you really need if you keep thinking that stuff is going to meet that need because you keep needing more and more stuff. So, you can never get enough of what you don't really need means you need something different. And you've got to understand, begin to tease out what it is you really need. And these are psychological, authentic emotional needs that all of us have that get hijacked by the shopping process in a lot of people. And again, these are needs like the need for love and affection, the need to belong, the need for self-esteem, the need for the esteem of other people, and the need for autonomy. These are needs all of us have. We just have to find ways to meet them, even shopping for ways to meet them, in our heads, not in stores. Can you... Can you Give me an example, either, you know, something that's from your book or a client example, because I really do follow what you're saying, Having, um, but I also am wondering if a concrete example might help kind of bring that idea home. Okay. Let me think about what might be the best example to give you. I'm thinking about a woman I worked with who was a compulsive jewelry buyer. And Kathleen, you and I have a colleague, Olivia Mellon. Oh, yeah. Who has an exercise that I use quite often, which began as a money dialogue. The person talks to money, money talks back to them. You have a whole conversation with money or something else, and then important people in your life comment on that dialogue. So the woman I'm thinking about did a dialogue with her jewelry, and she talked to the jewelry, 
the jewelry would talk back to her and the jewelry would say, I know you think you're buying too much of me, but you can never have too much of me. What makes you think that you're anything without me? And then the woman I was working with would say, but I don't need that much of you. I'm doing okay in my life. This is actually putting me into debt, and I really want to let go of you. And Jewelry would then say to her, you just try it, but you're going to see that you're not going to get very far. And all of a sudden, this woman, as she was having this dialogue, had this aha, uncomfortable kind of shock when she realized that the voice of the jewelry was a very critical voice of her mother. <laughs> and this broke the jewelry buying wide open. And then what happened was after this jewelry dialogue was finished, the second part of the exercise is your mother, your father, a significant other, and some form of higher power or inner wisdom all comment on the dialogue. And so her mother commented on the dialogue, and you can imagine what her mother said. And her father, who had been quite passive, commented also, essentially saying, um, you know, you just have to tune your mother out, but good luck. It's been hard for me to do it all these years. And then her significant other did try to help her to see that this was going down the wrong path. And her inner wisdom, little by little, got to the point where that became stronger and louder than the voice of her mother and the voice of her father. And that's really, that was a, a seminal moment in the work. For her to realize that the jewelry and the buying of the jewelry was this contentious relationship and that she was trying to fill herself up with something that she didn't get that maybe she wasn't going to get from the jewelry or, and I'm taking a little leap of faith here, um, but maybe she wasn't going to get from her mother either. Yeah, she didn't get it from her mother and her mother would always say, you're not enough. You have to do things to embellish yourself to be better. And that she bought into that. So if you had to rework this myth as we kind of wind down, because I feel like we could spend all day talking about this, but our, our time is up. Um, if you could reframe this myth and, and have it something more positive in your life, instead of the myth of whoever said money can't buy happiness didn't, just didn't know where to shop, what kind of mantra or what kind of saying would you encourage people to replace that with? Well, the first thing I would say is the mantra of you can never get enough of what you don't really need is a powerful one. And that has people thinking. In terms of reframing the whoever said money can't buy happiness just didn't know where to shop, I would say something like, Acquire ideas and experiences instead of goods and services. Semicolon. These are much more likely to make you happy. 
Hmm, I like that. That's a very nice way of putting it, April, as you always have a nice way of putting things. Um, I know there's going to be some listeners out there who are interested in your work and in some of the different projects you're working on. We only hardly scratch the surface as to what you're up to. So can you um, tell people a little bit about your text messaging program and your Stop the Shopping Insanity audio program? And then we'll... um, let them know where they can reach out to you after this broadcast. Fine. So a year ago, we developed a text messaging program for compulsive buyers, and we're very excited about it. It's just been licensed for use in Australia as well. And people get sign up for three months of tailored text messages. They fill out an assessment before they get their first text, and the responses on their assessment inform which texts we send them. And they get between two and five texts a day. The five text day would be, for example, a Friday or a Sunday when they get an extra text. It might be the day of or the day before a special shopping day like Cyber Monday. And these texts remind you of your goals and what you need to be thinking about and what you need to be doing to stop over shopping. And it's an interactive program where 24-7 the user can text the system if they're having an urge to shop, if they've already started shopping in a store or online, and we text them back immediately with a text that attempts to talk them off that emotional ledge. Some of them are linked to one-minute audios that do the same. Ten minutes later, we text them and we ask them, are they still having the urge? Or are they still shopping? Or has it passed? And depending upon what they say, in response to that, they get one more text. That's the whole routine. And people have found it very, very helpful. And it's very affordable. So the Stop the Shopping Insanity audio program is another tool. And it consists of three interviews I did. One with three women, each of whom wrote a book about her recovery from compulsive buying. And I interviewed each one. And that's what that program is. You always do such great, wonderful work that's research-based but innovative, and and those tools just sound fascinating. The texting program, which I knew about a little bit, um, but I didn't know how far it had gotten. It sounds like a wonderful program that's helping lots of folks. Um, So thank you so much uh, for joining us today, April, and sharing your thoughts and your work and a little bit about your own history. I really appreciate it. It was great to great to be with you again, Kathleen. And, you know, these are such important topics, and I'm so glad that you continue to do this. Thank it's- you. Well, thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence. I'm Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert and author dedicated, dedicated to getting people talking about money matters. If you're interested in more information about my book, speaking, and other services, please visit my website at kbkwealthconnection.com. And until next time, remember that together we can break money silence for good.